You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Lacrosse Boots. Now, if you haven't heard yet, uh, this is me telling you, you need to take a look at the new boots from Lacrosse, and they fall under the Navigator series. Now, what they've done is they've taken the best parts of a rubber boot and the best parts of your traditional hiking and hunting boot, and they've mashed them together to come up with this new line of boots from lacrosse and that is the navigator series now they have the women's wind rows they have the men's wind rows and then they have the atlas the atlas series within that as well so go to lacrossefootwear.com and check out this new line of boots that they have i've been using mine for a couple weeks now and i am very impressed with the the fit and the feel and i can't wait to get them in the woods this hunting season and uh, give them a trial run so lacrossefootwear.com check them out In this episode of the Hounds of Next Peak podcast, this is a guest that, that we've been trying to get on the podcast since we started, and uh, uh, I'm just really excited about having Erica Froming on here. We also have our new team member, Lauren Verani, who gets her debut on the mic as the co-host of the Hounds of Next Peak podcast, but Steve, you're the guy that, that has had a working relationship with Erica for a long time. And you know her far better than I, so just take it away and and uh, talk about it. Well, we're going to introduce Erica to our listeners, and they're going to see right away what a, a very, very sharp person she is and how dedicated she is to our sport of hunting with hounds. She hunts raccoons and bobcats and coyotes and bears and and, and the whole deal. But I think her greatest strengths are in her leadership roles. And she's a person that's really stepped into the fight, so to speak, to try to uh, protect and preserve and, and promote our hound sports there in uh, her home state of Wisconsin. I met Erica's father many years ago at the UKC World Championship. We held a zone hunt in Elkhorn, Wisconsin, uh, and that's where Erica was born. And then later on, when we started the Heartland Classic Hunt up there in Toma, Wisconsin, Erica was one of the first people that stepped up. And right away, I could see the leadership uh, that this uh, uh, young woman possesses. And, uh, and our listeners are going to see uh, just uh, what a dynamic person she is. She is definitely extreme performance. There's no doubt she's busy. And uh, her message is going to be one that's inspirational to all of our listeners out there, how they can get get involved in, in securing the future of our hound sports. So you said something about getting in the fight up there, and let's mention our sponsor, DU Supply. And our listeners can find our swag, our logo wear decals at the dusupply.com, W Hunting Supply. And uh, uh, they can go there and they can, they can get that logo patch cap our new cap that's out there and join the fight that way so that we can keep bringing you guests and interviews just like this well that's right chris that's the way that you can support the podcast uh, get a cap wear it we've got some exciting announcements uh that uh, 
we're going to be talking about that involve that cap or revolve around that cap. So uh, uh, good advice for sure. DUsupply.com. And by the time this podcast is out there, then you're going to see several announcements on our social media pages on Facebook and Instagram of, of what we're going to do with that patch cap and the people that uh, want to support the podcast by buying it. So without further ado, Steve, let's roll this interview. I'm ready. XP podcast with your host Steve Fielder and me Chris Powell. If you're ready to up your game to extreme performance, sit back, buckle up, and hang on for another exciting episode of Houndsman XP. Welcome to the Houndsman XP podcast, and for our listeners, you will know a new voice sitting in the host chair, or the co-host chair, I should say, and this is Lauren's pilot podcast as one of the hosts, and of course, we've always got our resident hound expert, Steve Fielder, coming at us from down in Florida, so we're talking to you from all over the country, so Lauren, I'm going to ask you first, how are you today? I'm doing great. You know, as the first timer here, trying to do this podcast from from far away, setting up everything was a little overwhelming, but we got it done. Yeah. And uh, I, I got here and I'm sitting with Erica right now on this little farmette. And um, it's been great in Wisconsin. You're sitting on a what? A, You're sitting on a what? A you... farmette. What is that? A farm at. Now, here we go. We're going to get, we got educated to the cheese curds. Wait, uh, first introduced, Lauren. That's a girl-sized so farm. Let's hear it. Um, a farmette. So that's what we call it in Wisconsin when it's a small farm. I guess maybe it's kind of like a girl-sized farm. Um, but we just live on the end of a dead end road, have a bunch of hound dogs and a couple of horses and we call it a farmette. Yeah. And well, you know, I've been looking to move out rural and I, I see these things on, you know, realtor, the, the app and stuff like, Oh, you know, cute little farmette on five acres or whatever it is. And I'm like, well, that's, that's what I want. But I, uh, as I'm sitting out here, I'm looking at the barn and everything, um, I guess I was enamored the first time that I came out here, and now I'm actually going to be moving out to a farm myself. There you go. Cool. It's about yeah, time. Congratulations. I don't know what I'm in here. I'm in, the, like, the home at, I think. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's a re- retirement village here in Florida, about two miles from the Gulf of Mexico, and uh, everybody here is old. I don't understand it. They say it's where the old elephants come to die. So, uh, you know, but I I want an et. I want, I want to be an et owner. That's right. So, Steve, I got a question for you. So when yeah. you walk around your community, do you often think, man, these people look old? 
I absolutely, I went to a class reunion, my 50th <laughs> reunion. I couldn't believe it. I said, uh, I looked at Ella and I said, look, there's nothing here but a bunch of old people. What happened to my classmates, you know? Yeah. You haven't aged, aged yourself at all with that conversation there, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> well, everything's good in Florida, Chris. We talk about the weather uh, sometimes and we are just now, I know we're behind you guys up up in the Midwest, but we're just now starting to get a little bit of cool breeze. Uh, the humidity is backing off a little bit, and we can get that little hint of maybe some fall coming down the road, but uh, we still get upper 80s in the daytime. Well, I know that you're getting itchy to get out and start hunting again. You've got some hunting trips coming up if if uh, some of them haven't already been completed by the time this episode comes out. I know that here in Good old Indiana, the Hoosier State. Uh, we're hitting highs in the 70s and lows in the 40s at night, so it's it's starting to feel like fall, and I'm getting wound up. Lauren, what you guys got? Uh, well, the past couple of days, it's been, what, like 60s, low 70s, maybe it hit today in Milwaukee, mm-hmm. and sunny. 50s and at night. It's coon hunting weather for it sure. It is perfect, <laughs> and I haven't been out. Like, what the heck? <laughs> we're counting down the days. Our season opens October 19th. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, but it's been beautiful, but I hear a cold front is coming and all the bird hunters are jacked up about that. And, uh, yeah, yeah. I always look forward to the first October in Michigan. I lived there for 22 years and, uh, October one was our coon season. And, uh, of course, you know, everything was still green and it really didn't have too much of that fall feel to it, but Hey, it was coon season, you know? For our <laughs> listeners out there, you are not hearing a Wisconsin echo. We've actually got Lauren on site doing a live interview with our guest tonight. And uh, or, and that is Erica Froming from Wisconsin. She's active in hound sports on a lot of different levels up there and uh, making an impact for hound hunters and, and bringing new hunters into the sport. And also, I think it's important with these programs that you're involved with, Erica, you're also networking your hound community with other sporting groups so that they have an idea who we are and what we do. And that is so crucial to the success and the future of hound hunting. But on this episode, Steve, you've got a, you've got a, a working relationship that you've had with, with Erica for a long time. And Lauren, you've worked with Erica and I'm just going to sit back and kind of keep this thing between the lines. Good luck. (laughs) (laughs) Steve? Well, yeah, well, you know, looking back, uh, and Erica and I have had this conversation uh, several times. Uh, I was with UKC, and it was uh, when we started doing the zone hunts. uh, We had gotten into a mess with that world hunt as it was growing uh, by leaps and bounds, and we were hunting all the dogs on a Wednesday night. And I remember at Marion, Indiana, I had 300 judges in the woods on a Wednesday night. It was just crazy. Uh, We used, in those days, we had two non-hunting judges on each cast. And uh, so we knew we had to do something. So we came up with the zone concept. And I believe it was the first year that we had the zone in Elk, one of the zones in Elkhorn, Wisconsin. And it was there that I, I worked very closely with Eric Froming, uh, Erica's dad, and 
got to know him fairly well and and he was a great guy and and uh, and then uh, later on when I went to the AKC uh, and we started a, a an event called the Heartland Classic in Toma, Wisconsin. Uh, Erica was very much a part of that event and uh, and I think we'll talk about that as we go forward. But Erica, it's just great to have you on the podcast and to uh, to to relive some of the, some great memories that I have of uh, hunts and times up there in Wisconsin. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I, I still remember that zone hunt in Elkhorn. I think I was eight or nine years old then, so sorry to age you <laughs> a little bit further in myself. Everybody but, uh, does. <laughs> that was a great introduction I had to you back then. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, you know, we've talked about your dad, and he has uh, has passed. And uh, uh, I know that, uh, you know, hopefully that's not uh, still difficult for you to talk about. But he was very much a, a, a mover and shaker in that successful uh, zone hunt up there. And so that I think that was probably uh, uh, made it easy then when we came to Wisconsin with the uh, with the Heartland Classic to uh, uh, um, although I didn't know you that well when you were younger. Uh, to renew that friendship. And it's been a great friendship that I've enjoyed very much. Well, same to you. Thank you. Um, you know, uh, Lauren, you and Erica, uh, we told Lauren's story uh, uh, on our Autumn Oaks series. We had three episodes uh, that we did live from Autumn Oaks. And uh, we, uh, Lauren told her story there of, of being involved with the sport for a couple of years but Lauren, uh, why don't you uh, take the mic and and tell us about your uh, uh, introduction to and 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 uh, experiences uh, with our guest? Sure. So as I mentioned in my episode, you know, I had gotten into it. I was like, oh, this is really cool. And then my first hunt that I went to was in Plymouth. I like how I just did air quotes. <laughs> I like, don't think they hear, even though no one can see me. <laughs> Um, so anyway, yeah, that first hunt was at Plymouth and I rode up with Max Gibson, who's now a really great friend and mentor. And he's known Erica since she was a little pipsqueak. Um, and I remember walking out and there's everybody outside. It still was a little bit light out. And here comes Erica. I'm like, she's like one of the only women there. And she's got like her really cool camel pants on and her <laughs> shoes. And she just looks very like professional for like a coon hunter and I would uh, say semi-pro semi-pro there you go <laughs> um and Max introduced us and kind of everything at that point was a very much uh, of a whirlwind for me so I couldn't tell you what we talked about or anything I don't know if Erica remembers I I do remember here's like we don't see a lot of new faces at the local clubs and if we do there's usually somebody's girlfriend or somebody's brother but here's this girl that got a hound from the Humane Society Max had given me her backstory a little bit and she just showed up to a hunt and decided she's gonna go and I'm like my god this girl's probably gonna be all right like she, <laughs> who just shows up and <laughs> decides they're gonna go on a with a bunch of crazy old men and it was crazy it was all crazy old men pretty much well, they didn't who, scare you off so that's good no it was a great cast yeah but um yeah 
So I'm, I thank you for feeling that way. Yeah. And then uh, the, the next time I saw her, she showed up at the Family Fun Day, which is an event for kids at Hebron. And here's Lauren and her mom and her brother, like all these people that know nothing about coonhounds. And they're there standing next to the swim race, cheering on all the dogs and loving every minute of it. I thought, that's a pretty cool family. I'm glad they came to the sport. <laughs> yeah, my uh, my family definitely likes watching the swim races. That's their, their favorite part. It's probably the best spectator part of it. Yeah, definitely. Um, and then it was probably the last time I was here at your farmette, um, Piper, my, my little dog, uh, was probably what, four months old or something oh, like yeah. that. We had, a, from, we had an all girl coon hunt. Yeah. We Piper out. Yeah. Yeah. So we had a, an all girls hunt. Piper didn't go out with us. She was too young, but I remember sitting on the floor with her here and she ran away a little bit outside into the bushes and. We had a good hunt into uh, the was it Bussyville? Bussyville, yeah. The Bussyville Bottoms, a legendary swampland. <laughs> yeah. So I was driving here, and I'm looking left, and I'm looking right on this tiny, broken down road, and it's all bottoms. It's uh, it, it, I was like, this swamp could just rise to the road. Does it ever rise? Oh, it goes over it frequently. Over the road. So yeah. like, you could take your kayak. Yeah. If you really want oh, to. Oh, you could, yeah. Your dog <laughs> wouldn't fit very well. I don't know where you'd put your dog box on the kayak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. We'd have to, like, hunt out of a John boat, which sure. I'm sure some people do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, hey, let me jump in there just a minute. I'm a kayaker. I When I moved to Florida, I got a kayak, and I get out and paddle around in the, at the mouths of these rivers that flow out into the Gulf of Mexico, and I... I've gotten a mile or two out at times, you know, and, and all, but, uh, how did a dog, have you tried to take a dog on your kayak, Erica? He's a navigational I, hazard is what he is. <laughs> it sounds like it. I've not taken a hound, but I do have some terriers that like to ride along with me. I see. Uh, and the hound might be a little big to keep the weight down. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah, maybe. So if you let me know if you try it and video it for us. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so my parents' <laughs> old dog Greta, we did get her in a kayak, and she was very well behaved and steady. Um, granted, we are on a lake, the tiny lake, so like if something went wrong, we we could both swim back to shore. Um, I took my first dog Bella, who was a coonhound mix. Um, on a canoe with my mother on the backwaters of the Mississippi river by La Crosse. And the whole trip went great until we got close to landing and <laughs> the canoe went over, everything dumped. The water is moving swiftly. <laughs> so that was, that was a ordeal. <laughs> well, so we, we'll have to ha do a new episode down the line about uh, coon hunting and kayaks or boating and, coon hunting or whatever but uh give me that... till next summer summer it's gonna be a little cold for that now <laughs> <laughs> right that's right well you know let's get into uh really uh getting to know our guest a little better erica uh just give us kind of a, a, a backstory here a bio where you were born where you live now what you're doing uh, in your life i know you got uh, an exciting announcement uh uh, an event that's coming up real soon. Just kind of tell us a little bit about what's going on with you. Sure, sure. So I'm from southeastern Wisconsin. I grew up in Elkhorn, Wisconsin, which is where those zone hunts were at back in the 80s. Now I live about 45 minutes northwest of there in a little tiny town called Edgerton, Wisconsin, or the township of Bussyville, as we like to call it. Um, live here with uh, my now husband, 
who I married about two years ago. He's a coon hunter, and uh, we uh, we met coon hunting. I really didn't like him, actually, for, <laughs> for several years. He was a tough competitor for quite a while, and then he bought a puppy from me. And I don't know if he actually wanted the puppy or not, but uh, I had bred my dog to a stud dog that he had owned previously, and so he wanted a puppy out of that cross. And we stayed in touch following that, and I learned – he wasn't such a bad guy. And so <laughs> funny enough, um, on our, we started dating in the fall a few years ago and on our second date, he offered to empty out my carcass bucket out of my fur shed. And, uh, many of you know, that's not a fun chore. So, <laughs> so I, need I a thought, man, like that. man, he might be a keeper. And so that, that was my first sign right there. <laughs> so I see. I, now, but but you were dating, but you weren't living close to each other. Right. He lived about four hours away, which is a really good way to start a relationship, actually. So you have told me. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and then and we were married married in 2017. And now um, we are expecting our first very own little kitten cooner. <laughs> so we're expecting a baby December 6th of this year. Wow. So that's coming up pretty soon. That's only a couple months away now. Yeah. Yeah. It's coming up quick. Yeah, not, not that I'm counting good. down the days, but I'm kind of counting down the days. <laughs> I bet. We talk about relationships, <laughs> building relationships and coon hunting. That takes it to a whole new level right there. Oh, it does. <laughs> it really does. Well, now your, a... hus your husband's name is Matt, right? Correct. Yeah. Okay. And uh, I have not met him. I know that there was probably a lot of disappointed coon hunters uh, in Wisconsin and all around that part of the world that when they found out that Erica was getting married. But, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he must be a pretty good guy for you to pick him out of all of the, the possibilities out there. He's a pretty nice one. You bet. <laughs> All right. Well, that's great. So now, now, do you, are you still working or yes. have you? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yep, Tell us about that a little bit. Well, I went to school to be a veterinary technician um, after working in veterinary clinic um, and left clinic to be become a pharmaceutical sales rep in the veterinary industry. So now um, I just have a small territory in southeastern Wisconsin that I call on to take care of my customers in that direct area. And I've been doing that for about 12 years now. It seems, seems like it fits me pretty well. It's been a pretty good gig. And it's a super small world because the vet that I go to, Dr. Joe, yeah, um, she came in, or I came into the office, and she's like, so you know Erica? I'm like, <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, I told her, you know, this is what my dogs do, and now she knows, you know, about all the coon hunting and why my dogs visit her so often sometimes. <laughs> but, yeah, so my vet is one of the vets that Erica calls on. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, it's a small world. Definitely. Very cool. Well, now, you started, well, of course, born in the home of a coon hunter. I, I suppose your dad hunted from the time you were very small. Is that right, Erica? He, I would say, yeah. The story that he told was that he would put me in a little backpack on top of, you know, the, the same backpack that he used to carry his coon hides in, and that's where we would ride uh, when we were real small. So we started coon hunting with my dad when I was really young. He had English hounds, and a lot of them, <laughs> uh, when we were quite young. And then as I got to be about 10 or 12 years old, he kind of started fading out of it, um, and we, we started 
at that age already having differences of opinion of how dogs should be trained. So, um, so when I was about 12 or 13, I decided that's when it was time for me to go out on my own and get my own dog. And wow. <laughs> <laughs> but I was fortunate enough to have grown up also in the coon club. So my dad's influence is right. He took us to the coon club all the time when we were growing up and what a wonderful place to grow up with friends and mentors that could teach us about hounds and keep us in hounds and you guys know it's as much about the relationships as it is anything else. And so we met some wonderful people there. Um, now, you have those, a sister. When you say we, you're speaking of your sister? Yeah, my younger sister and my older brother. We spent oh, a lot okay. of time in the club. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Now, he didn't put all three of you in one backpack, did he? No. No, we <laughs> aged out of it. Okay. <laughs> no, I mean together. I think we took turns, yeah. Okay. <laughs> So yeah. now, did he taught you things like gun safety and how to shoot and things like that when you were young? Yeah, he was very strict on, um, and I'm so thankful for that, but very strict on gun safety and taking good care of, you know, being respectful towards game and, you know, taking good care of your dogs. And so he, I'm very thankful for the things that were ingrained in me early on those fronts. Now, and was he, your mother supportive of all that or... Uh... Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I, yeah. I don't know if she was entirely, but she didn't prevent it either. So. I see. I see. Yeah. Well, that's great. And and so then uh, you decided to get your own dog when you were 12? Well, luckily enough, I had built enough or made enough good friends at the Coon Club in Hebron. Um, you probably remember Teresa Key. She's uh, Absolutely. Was a, just a really tremendous mentor for me. And when I was 12 or 13, she called me one day and she said, hey, we need some help at the Coon Club. If you run the kitchen for me this summer, I'll give you a puppy and out of their um, out of their line of red bones. So, of course, I agreed and then asked, you know, beg permission later. <laughs> right. um, but <laughs> but it worked out really, really well, because, as I mentioned, my dad was sort of kind of getting out of it at that point. So. I got the puppy from Teresa. They helped me train it. She kept in touch. And then she started dragging me to coon hunts all over the, all over the country, really, when I was pretty young. Um, and learned a, just a whole lot about uh, competition hunting and training from Teresa Key. So she was a wonderful mentor for me as well. I, yeah, I'd like to, to pause just a minute and, and remember uh, Teresa. She, she really was a wonderful, wonderful person. She and Alton uh, were very prominent on, on the national stage with, with the Red Bones and with competition hunting, and I met them years and years ago. And uh, in Erica's conversation that we had uh, in a previous podcast, she talked about people who were not uh, bashful women hunters that were were uh, able to stand up for themselves, so to speak. And oh boy, was Teresa one of those. She <laughs> she was a she was a competitor. She knew the rules, and she liked to talk rules. I mean, we talked rules so many times. We had some arguments, but they were always friendly arguments, yeah. you know, and she had her positions and, and she was, and, and she was very well read and, and well-spoken when it came to the rules, but just a delightful per person that, that left us much too early. And uh, just thanks for bringing her up because it brings back good memories for me too. Good. 
Yeah, for sure. Well, and I you had know, no idea your first dog was a red bone. Oh yeah. My, well, yeah, my first very own dog. Right. Yes, yeah. Yeah. My <laughs> things have changed. Oh yeah, I've been through a few different. <laughs> so now, uh, there, uh, Lisa Key, Teresa's daughter, is she about your age, or are you guys were you was she uh, in the picture there when you guys uh, when you were traveling with Teresa? She was. She's about 10 years older than me, and so she had okay. really young children at that time. And she, her passion at that time was really more in showing. Um, so she did travel to go to a lot of big shows, but Teresa and I made a lot of those road trips, just the two of us, to go to hunts. Yeah. Um, and that's when Teresa was running the Purina circuit. So we had to, had a lot of ground to cover. Wow. <laughs> and I got to meet Lisa for the first time at the Heartland that just happened in May. It's, what a wonderful person yeah. also to be involved in yeah. the sport. And, um, exactly. we, had been, we had been Facebook friends and we knew of each other and everything. Mm-hmm. And then I'm like, we saw each other. We're like, oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. Great so, advocate for the breed and definitely. for the sport. Well, we'll talk about that as we go along, Erica, but there is such a, uh, you use the word wonderful, and I can't think of a better word for the hound community in Wisconsin. Uh, met many, many hunters over the years up there, and uh, you have just a wonderful place to hunt raccoons to start with, And uh, but uh, yeah, it's there's a great hound community up there. I hope it's doing well, and uh We'll talk about that, I'm sure. Chris, did you have something? No, I was just going to. Uh, I didn't know where we were in the in the show outline here, so I was just going to ask about the introduction to competition hunting. But you guys have already taken care of that, so sounds good. Well, really, Erica, when did you actually uh, take a hold of a leash and start calling a dog in the night hunts? Oh, I was probably 15, 16, something like that. It would have been that first red bone that I got from Mountain and Teresa, a dog named Gus. He was never very good, um, <laughs> but I wasn't at that time either, so that's all right. We learned together. <laughs> I have one like that. I was going to say, that's where I'm at, too. So, <laughs> Well, you know, when I started out, my dad gave me a dog that was a good dog. And, but he was a lot better dog than I was handler. And I got beat up a lot. <laughs> we didn't have youth hunts where, oh, let's have all the kids hunt together and let's be nice. <laughs> I had to hunt with those grizzly old guys, you know, that would uh, come to blows over a $2 trophy back in those days. Yeah, that's where I started as well. It was rough and tumble, but you learned how to hold your own pretty quick. <laughs> For sure. For sure. Yeah, so, Max Gibson has told me some stories about the good old, yeah. the, the good old days. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. Well, you know, one more little look back to that Elkhorn Zone hunt. That's the first time I had uh, uh, brats uh, cooked in beer. Oh, yeah. That's a big Wisconsin thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's and, the and, only way I cook them. <laughs> I didn't know. And, well, it's, it, it might be the only way. <laughs> I enjoy them that way, too. Beer and onions together. And some cheese curds. (laughs) On on the side or even cheese inside brats. That's, yep. (laughs) Just, we'll put it everywhere. Yeah. Well, okay. We've gone from the weather to the culinary section. When are we (laughs) going to get over? And we touched on the sports section. But, uh, Erica, t- tell me a little bit about how this, besides 
doing with your dad a sport that he loved. I mean, what lit the fire uh, for these this hound sport with you? What do you uh, think it was? I, I love the hounds and I love watching them work. And that, that I love watching any working dog go to do what it's meant to do. But the hound sports really have me hooked pretty hard. Um, you know, I grew up coon hunting and I always thought, you know, I was learning pretty well and thought I was doing pretty good. But then I got in my late teenage years, I started going along on some bear hunts and I thought, well, that that's kind of cool too. These dogs do it a little bit differently and I learned a little more there. And then somewhere along the line, I got into coyote hunting and that kind of blew my mind. You know, I thought I knew a little bit about how hounds work until I started hunting coyote dogs. And that's a, there's, there's some intense challenges with coyote hunting and a lot of talent there, uh, bobcat hunting as well. And so I got pretty serious about that for quite a few years as well. And still really, really enjoy the challenge of hunting coyotes and bobcats. Um, but still coon hunting is what I do most. So, well, um, kind of come full circle. I, I enjoy all of it, but, um, coon hunting again is what, what keeps my interest on a daily basis. Oh, yeah. Now, you mentioned that your dad had English dogs, but you've kind of taken a turn toward the Walker breed as far as your hounds, haven't you? Yeah. Yeah. So Tell funny us about your pack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've got a pretty fun pack of dogs. So, um, another mentor of mine and talk about rough and tumble handlers. Um, a guy by the name of Dave Marston, who's also from here in Bussyville, mm -hmm. has had some pretty consistent winning dogs, um, for a long, long time. And I think he placed in the finals of the world in 1981. Um, and he likes to talk about that dog called Crowbait, but he's had several generations of dogs since then. And what he also, um, has some, he's aging a little bit. And one summer I didn't have a dog that was ready for competition. So I thought, well, I'll just drive Dave to the hunts for him so that he doesn't have to travel and his wife doesn't have to worry. And he kept asking me, Hey, are you going to get ready to get a Walker dog yet? I kept saying, Oh no, I will never have a Walker dog. <laughs> <laughs> He's got these old, you know, black and white clover bred dogs that are a little bit ugly. And, um, after the, after the third, third cast that summer that I had drove him to when his dog scored like just totally gutted the cast you know she had several hundred points more than the other dogs she was treeing coons that the other dogs didn't even know were there so on the way home from that third cast he turned to me and he, he said well kid or boss he calls me boss well boss are you ready to get a walker dog yet and I said yeah all, all right <laughs> sign me up for the next sign me up for a female out of the next litter so he let me have pick of that litter and that was moxie and that was um you know, if you talk about coon hounds are a little bit wild on their feet, she was one of them. And uh, probably will always be one of the biggest influences in my life was that dog. I mean, all all of, all of dogs leave a mark on our lives, but that one I learned the most from. Really, really intense dog, really special dog, really difficult dog. <laughs> but i um, so glad that I made the move with her. And then I bred her and got Bergy out of her. And then I bred Bergy, and now we have Olive and Tonto out of, that, out of her as well. So we've got... We're in our third generation here now. And they are the clover type dogs from the pictures I've seen. They, yeah. Uh, predominantly black and white, wide uh, blazes on the face. Maybe uh, uh, do any of them have the, uh, the, the white eye or the... Uh, None of them have that. I've, I've not yeah. seen that pop up in any of mine yet. Mm-hmm. I don't think they're ugly. Like, I've seen uglier dogs. For they're sure. built a little better than they used to be. It's, it's gotten a little better, but they're... Yeah, yeah. It's it's Did definitely the clover look though. Uh, uh, not lately. No, I I used to show quite a bit, but now I'm not. I'm really more focused on the 
No, just in the past. The, the, the for any of the four generations, three generations. None of these. None of these. None of these. Shown, okay. Well, okay. So you got into the Walker Dogs. Uh, did your competition game uh, pick up? Yeah, dramatically. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, it was all boot tickers in the, <laughs> in the tall grass. Yeah, it was a game changer for me, for sure. I, the, if, and at first, I didn't really know what I had, to be honest. You know, I always had, I would say, looking back, I had pretty mediocre coon dogs for quite a long time and um, got some wild dogs. And Mo boy, Moxie was a handful. <laughs> but look, she was pretty special, too. I, I learned an awful lot from her, and definitely the competition game changed significantly for me. Sure. What do you like in a coon hound, Erica? Oh, honesty, number one. I really, accuracy is really, really important to me. Um, I like, a, I enjoy a smart dog as well. Um, I like a dog that can take a really bad track and figure it out. I mean, I, I know in competition hunts, we don't like to waste time, but I'm, in my heart of hearts, I'm more of a, probably more of a hide hunter than a competition hunter. And I like to see a dog with a, a lot of talent for working out a bad track and having the coon and, you know, doing things that a lot of dogs can't get done. Yeah, I think that uh, certainly I, I would uh, qualify uh, as liking that type dog as well. And I think uh, uh, a lot of people do. And and as you said, though, uh, it, nowadays people want them, you know, hot-nosed, uh, hard, wide, crazy hunters that get under a coon and, and hopefully get it scored before the time runs out. But uh, to me, I think, uh, and I know those kinds of dogs win at times, but to me, I think that the guy or the gal that's hunting that kind of dog is missing an awful lot of what is the real joy of coon hunting or has always been for me. And that's in listening to the dog uh, trail with a good mouth and make progress on the track and figure it out and come up with the coon. It just doesn't get any better than that for me. Yeah, for me, it's more important that I have a dog that's really fun to hunt all week long than the occasional Saturday night that I go to a night hunt. So um, yeah, the, uh, all of those attributes are much more important to me than, and to each their own. Everybody's got a different style of dog, but I just like a dog that's really fun to hunt with. Well, Erica, that's one of the things that I've always said too. I, some of the dogs I've had over the years, people ask me about them and I said, you know, they were a coon dog before they were a competition dog. I have to, I cannot stand to take a dog to the woods and get it out you know, for three or four nights so that I can take them to a competition hunt. And they've got to be a coon dog with a lot of natural talent and brains and a lot of things like that before, before I'll put any time into them. And I've, I've probably sent some dogs down the road that, that are winners that people wonder why I got rid of them. But if I don't enjoy hunting them, I don't keep them. Yeah, I agree. Well, you mentioned bobcat and coyote hunting. Let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, do you have dogs that you run on bobcats or, or coyotes? On coyotes, yes. I don't have any that yeah. I run on bobcat just because I don't do it often enough for them to be good at it. We don't have many bobcats in my area. around here a lot? Not a lot, really. So I have I friends that have really, really nice dogs, and I go appreciate theirs. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's me. I don't have any bear dogs anymore, but I like to go up to the mountains or up, up north and hunt with the guys that do, you know. And I guess that's kind of cheating in a way. I don't have to feed that pack all <laughs> all year, and you know, I just get to enjoy the benefits, you know. But uh, what yeah. kind of a dog do you like on coyotes? You know, we 
I got started with a group in northern Wisconsin that started crossing running walkers with plots many years ago. And I really enjoy those dogs. They seem to have a little more sense to them than a running dog would, but they move a whole lot faster than a typical plot or tree, you know, trailing hound might. So it's been a pretty good cross for, you know, a really nice running walker crossed on a really nice plot seems to make some pretty nice dogs. Um, you know, I like a dog, ideally they can cold trail and jump and keep a coyote moving. Um, you know, in the olden days or when I first started, we ran dog, you know, you had your cold trailers and then you had your jump dogs. And I really like a dog that can stay on both because I only coyote hunt on the weekends, so I'm not going to have six dogs. I just have two, and I like mm-hmm. them to be able to be able to hunt them the whole day. Sure. Uh, we had Mike Thorman over in Michigan with the Michigan Hunting Dog Federation on, and he has a line of, of walkers that go back to running stock, a lot of it, and some Nance bred dogs. But uh, uh, his sentiments were are about the same, I think, in the type of dog that he liked there. But... Uh, well, you know, we've talked about competition hunting and your pleasure hunting and so forth, and all of this has given you quite a, a background for some of the activities uh, that you're engaged in now. But uh, let's talk a little bit about your work with uh, with the uh, Heartland Federation and the Heartland Classic event and. Uh, Rather than me tell the story, I'd like to hear hear your side of that story since you and I both were involved in, in it from the very start. Oh, yeah. Well, that's a really a, a great hunt that we have up in the Midwest, probably the biggest one the Midwest has. We call it the Heartland Classic. Started in 2006 in Tolma, Wisconsin, was the brainchild of Steve Fielder and Jerry Mall and um mm. akc up there and that was the very first wheeler hunt so everybody cl- likes to claim that they're having a wheeler hunt nowadays but it was the first one so we're, we're pretty proud of that um and we after the first year in toma the original guys that tried to help organize it decided they didn't really want to be involved the local guys so kind of just handed it off to a couple of us and we're like well all right we'll we'll help put on this event and so we kept it in toma for a couple of years and the event numbers really weren't growing the way we'd like them to. Um, so we actually based on, I think it was Jerry Mall's recommendation, we were invited to move it down to um, Nashua, Iowa, where Brad Messersmith Gomer was the uh, kind of a club or the, the club leader down there. Or I guess they called it the Gomer Rod and Bob Club. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and the Heartland did well down there. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, We'll pause for a moment to appreciate old Gomer too, because he's since passed on as well. And what a another yeah. just fabulous person in our sport, and I really, really, really miss him a lot. Um, that, let's it was so stop. much fun. Yeah, absolutely. I can still see when we would give away <laughs> those four wheelers, <laughs> and, and you know, it, this guy Gomer, Brad Messersmith, and Rod. Uh, uh, what Hannah Walt and and who was the Bob? Bob Berger and then Phil Krugel yeah. was mixed in there too. Yeah, Phil Krugel. That's right from from Minnesota. But anyway, Gomer. Wh- the deal was, and maybe I'm stealing your thunder, but uh, the Federation buys two four wheelers, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, they sell raffle tickets to and and sell enough. Only a, I think a thousand tickets, right? It's up to 1200 now, 1200? but yeah, okay. just enough to cover the cost of the wheelers. 
Yeah. And so then one of the wheelers goes to the winner of the hunt and the other one goes to the winner of the raffle. And I remember Gomer so well, as soon as we'd give away that wheeler, he'd jump on it, fire it up, go a couple of circles around in the barn, there, <laughs> down the road he'd go and back. He had to, it's like he had to try it out. You know, he before. just did, yep. He oh, just wanted yeah. to break it in for everybody. He I sure guess. did, yep. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> what a fun hunt that was over in, in Iowa. And, uh, I, uh, that's when I was in the AKC days and, and it, it goes, uh, the decision to move it to a UKC license was a very wise decision, I believe. And, uh, and it's grown from there, but go ahead and pick that up, Erica. Uh, yeah, so after a few great years in Nashua, um, part of us kind of thought that the Heartland needed to grow a little bit more. Um, you know, bigger numbers, better show, more of a family style event. And then the Gomer Rod and Bob Club, they really, really like PKC. So we split at that point and quite amicably, you know, I still supported their event and they still came and supported the Heartland when it went to Wisconsin. So they kept what they called the Cedar River Classic and continued to have a wheeler hunt down there um, with PKC. And the Heartland got moved to Wisconsin, Mineral Point, Wisconsin, where it stayed AKC for a couple of years. And then, um, still looking to grow the events, um, still looking to find ways to make it an event, you know, kind of a family style event, something that might reward the all around hound or the multi, the dual purpose hounds. Um, we decided to make it a UKC event. So that really did help the event bloom. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I, I do feel bad about leaving AKC for UKC, but it did help the event a lot. Um, you know, we were pretty independent in the way that we ran that event. So, um, it was we, the right decision. It Erica. was the right decision. Yeah. yeah. So then we added a water race and a field trial and the bench show grew and the hunt grew. Um, and it's been UKC ever since, um, for quite a few years up there in mineral point. And it seems to, it's really a, really a fun event. Everybody gives such great feedback on it. It's, um, family atmosphere, so many different events, so many things going on all day. The, just the, just the setting of it is really, it's, and it's, it's beautiful. A, out there. It is. Yeah. And great hunting. Um, you know, I hear a lot from, even though we, <laughs> there's been some consistent winners of the Wheeler, everybody still feels like it's anyone's game. Um, you know, we, we don't, we, you do have to have a, we give priority to, to um, double cast winners, which I think is really important to reduce the, temptation to build big scores and so you have to win three casts and two nights to win a four wheel and i think that's important so we're pretty proud that we've kept that format the show keeps growing the water racing field trial i think are among the biggest in the country um so those events keep growing as well and we just keep just we don't want it to be huge we like the numbers that it's at right now because then we can maintain it for what it is and there's we think it's a pretty high quality event and you know we don't ever want to have 800 dogs because that gets things start to get unraveled then i think so um we're pretty proud of it just the way it is and um hope this year we're bringing on some new leadership i think i've been the heartland chairman for about 14 years and i'm um, getting some more help on board this year with the lifestyle adjustments i'm anticipating in the coming <laughs> year <laughs> so we've got a really really great team of guys out there and gals out there um that uh help put the event together it's funny enough um I might be the only person that notices this, so maybe I shouldn't even mention it, but I'm the chairperson of the hunt, and I kind of organize the hunt part of it. And we have another gal that organizes the water race and field trial, and another gal 
previously that had organized the bench show. And I think that's why it's been going so well. <laughs> I didn't even know that. Hey, well, we well, added a lot, a lot of new faces into the mix this year, so it won't be the same anymore. But I think that's probably why it went so well. It ran really well this year. <laughs> well, you well. know, and I, I'm sure that's true. And I can look back uh, to a conversation that I had with you, Erica, uh, back when uh, uh, there was a question about the leadership and who was going to take the reins to move forward with this event. And uh, I don't mean to try to flatter you or embarrass you, but there was no doubt in my mind that you were the person to do that. And I think, as the, as they say in the movie, uh, uh, my cousin Vinny, let the record show, you know, that that was a <laughs> right decision. Okay. And, uh, <laughs> and you've done a terrific job with that event. And I know uh, you're very quick to give credit to all the help and support, but that's what good leaders do they get good people to help them in the effort and and it's obvious that it's done very well and i take a lot of pride in that uh, probably more in in the decision to encourage you to be the leader than than i do in the fact that i was the guy that that started the event but uh and of course jerry and and uh and lindell and, and jimmy phillips and all the crew that we had there at AKC and and Sheldon Swenson and Phil Krugel and the meetings that we had in the early days to plan all that that was a that was a, a a good a good idea that I had and I am patting myself on the back because <laughs> you should it worked out great for because, us Thank you. but you've taken the ball and run with it and taken it to heights that I never really imagined and I just want to thank you and congratulate you for that for sure well, thank, thank you but I will back out and say that I've got a, it's the team there really is um, there's some wonderful just really ambitious and helpful and kind-hearted people out there that help put it together yeah, I was going to say leaders are defined by the success of, of their team. And we're going to make sure. Yeah. You, you, yeah. I just, you know, I don't know anything different than how things have been run. Um, but I'm sure it'll it'll be great going it'll, forward. It'll be Who wonderful. knows? Maybe I'll be helping out soon. Yeah. Get you on the list. Yeah. yeah sure. Well, what are the dates of the Heartland, uh, Eric? It's always, the, it's always the second weekend in May, which I know for you, you always have conflict because it's plot days as well. Well, this year, not after we, this year. I think <laughs> they've changed it. I think they went back to June or whatever. Oh, so good. They can't decide where they want <laughs> when they want to be. So, uh, yeah, I think I think so. That might be an opening for me this year. Good, very good. Yeah, or next year, I should say. Yeah. Well, okay. Uh, you know, on this podcast, and Chris probably could jump in here uh, when we talk about our goals and why we're doing this. And uh, the last time I looked at the bank statement, it wasn't for the money. I can tell that. No doubt. But, uh, you know, we've all, we've had a goal from the very start and we kind of boiled it down to three words to, to promote, preserve and protect the hound sports for uh, now and for future generations. And I know that you've been involved in a lot of things that are kind of paying it forward. Uh, you know, you had a dad that taught you well. You had mentors. 
Dave Marston, for instance, and other people that that helped you along the way. And now you're you're uh, taking it to a whole new level. And I, I've I've been kind of watching from afar what's going on up there. But I want you to tell our listeners uh, about some of the activities that you're doing with the uh, Wisconsin DNR and with your hound workshops and your first schools and all that. So just let's just talk about that for a while. Sure. Um, so. We're fortunate in Wisconsin that we have so many opportunities and we've been able to build a really great relationship with our Wisconsin DNR and they really, you know, they're, they're, they're here for all user groups, but we certainly have to be involved with them if we want to have a future with them. So um, we have a couple training programs for them, one of which is we just had our second year. It's called the Hunting with Hounds Workshop. And in that, wildlife professionals are invited as part of their training professional training to come learn about hunting with hounds so it's a two-day workshop and they learn about the ethics and the regulations and the challenges that we face and what a hunt actually looks like they also learn about appropriate communication with the public and you know public image and all of the things that are really important to us and then we take them out on a coon hunt that night so they get to see what the dogs do and then we take them to a beagle pen to watch them chase rabbits the next day and then later in the summer they're paired up with a bear hunter to learn about bear hunting so most of our dnr professionals through no fault of their own um, but they just don't have any experience with hunting with hounds or if they do have it's because there was a conflict and they were called in to help deal with it so no surprise that they may not have a very high opinion of hound hunters we've put it out there for them to see it um, the bad actors in our support in our sport so they come open-minded and they learn what hound hunting is supposed to look like and what we really want it to be, what we're striving for it to be, and let them know that we don't support the bad guys at so all. So, Eric, and, um, I, want, I, I want to ask you a question right there. So are you training yeah. law enforcement as well? We do. It's been wildlife professionals, so biologists okay. primarily in the past, but we have had a couple game wardens or game warden. I think we even had a game warden student as well. Mm -hmm. um, but because it's, we've only been doing it for two years, we've kind of just opened it up to smaller segments as we go. And I think law enforcement will be included in the invite list next year. You know, the, the reason I ask that question is because of something you said, you know, uh, because their exposure to hound hunters with hounds was because of a conflict. I can tell you without a doubt that in 28 years, I dealt with far more conflicts in other sporting groups than I ever dealt with hounds. So, it always boggled my mind, and this is what I worked on in Indiana and even with recruits and, and our veteran officers and everything else, is that houndsmen are no different than any other sporting group we have. And if we're going to gauge it, our opinions based on, well, the, the uh, exposure I've had with them has been a negative exposure, well, then we ought to hate deer hunters and duck hunters and rabbit hunters and everybody else too. You know, there's, there's no Equal reason for that. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I know what you're going through there and I know the challenges you face because, uh, we did the same thing with the Hoosier Tree Dog Alliance, but we all, I, we also partnered with the law enforcement division because of my position to bring, uh, the Tree Dog Alliance into our recruit training classes. So from the first time, many of these officers in training ever had an exposure to a hound hunter it was a positive experience and and that paid dividends for a long time so i applaud that effort and uh, believe it or not indiana looks at wisconsin 
as a leader in wildlife management and and how you're doing things right up there. And some of those things have come back home here too with things like the Hoosier Outdoor Experience and 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 programs like that. But I I just wanted to throw that in there. Yeah, thank you. I I agree. It's so important just to you know, even if they don't like it, at least their opinion that they're coming from is a, is based on experience and they they have some firsthand education on it. Uh, we feel it's also really important to help them um, navigate through tough conversations with the public. So we do a little bit of that sort of training. And really, at, at the end of it, they all say, my gosh, it's nothing like I thought it was. And I'm so glad I came and this will help me in my career. And they encourage their colleagues to come. So it's been a, a really terrific program for us and look forward to it growing what are your and what are you, part- yeah so so do you have things that uh when you're working in this partnership with wisconsin dnr do they have some some uh points that they want you to hit or are you pretty much freelancing and edu- taking the stage showing them what they need to know how's that working for you well, we all meet together several times a year. So it's Wisconsin Coon Hunters Association, Wisconsin Bear Hunters Association, the Wisconsin DNR, the Wisconsin Beagle Field Trial Club Association, and the Sporting Dogs Association. So we all meet together several times a year so we can agree on what's going to be included the, in the agenda because two days sounds like a lot of time, but we really do cram quite a lot in there. Um, and it's nothing's hidden, um, you know, so it's not – anybody's specific or personal agenda we want to flush everything out and make sure we openly discuss any any uneasiness that they have or any misperceptions that they might have um so we've i think the agenda and the the pertinent points that we've come up with are a collaboration of all of our opinions and input nice nice so you've actually collaborated on these issues and come up with a curriculum for this training program i know state governments are big about you know, having curriculums that, you know, something that they can put their hands on and stick in a file. And that's all important so they can go and justify time of their employees to be to be here. One of the things we found was uh, being able to do this is they could actually count it as in-service time. <clears throat> in Indiana, yes. you know, state employees are required to have so many hours of in-service training every year. And we were able to incorporate that into those required hours. So it was a pretty exciting, it was a win-win. Absolutely. I believe that these, um, I don't know if they call it in-service hours, but they do consider professional training or professional development for them. So they're, they're paid to go and their expenses are covered for travel and everything. It's definitely not a, a volunteer type of show up if you want to sort of an event and where is it typically held in wisconsin is it centralized or right now the last two years we've had at the mckenzie center in Poinette, which is pretty central um just a little bit north of madison but we may move it to the north next year just to keep bouncing it around for others to have more opportunity mm-hmm. okay. and do they hear about it through um the dnr do they say hey you know these people have to go this year or is it it gets funneled down through the biologist managers the okay. team managers and the Okay. different departments and then another part of it i i know i've seen pictures and things as part of that training where they meet all the different breeds yes all, okay so yep. they meet the the beagles and the hounds and yeah okay yeah to put a, to a face to the name I yeah guess. exactly <laughs> yeah so i found there's a couple key key things here you could might add to your curriculum that we'll get have i got everybody here yep yep okay. oh yeah 
I, I sounded like dead air there, so I wanted to make sure I still had everybody. One of the key things that you can add to your curriculum that I think will, will uh, you know, if it's an elective type thing and you're depending on state employees to come, is if you have nap time and <laughs> free food. Free food, you'll get a lot of state employees there. I saw her with the pen. I'm like, oh, he's going to give us some some good intel here. <laughs> nap time and snacks. Well, there are dorms there. There are dorms, and we do feed them well. Awesome. Uh, yeah, I know all the Hoosier listeners that we have to this podcast, and there are several, are very comforted to, to know what their tax dollars have been paying for. Uh, at, <laughs> least for, at least for the 28 years that Chris was on the on the depart in the department. That's right. That's right. Hey, I got a I got a quite serious question. So, your network of houndsmen throughout the state of Wisconsin since you started this, you say you've been doing it for two years. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Have you started to see any positive feedback from houndsmen about their interactions with state game managers? Have you started to see that yet? That's a good question. Um, I'd have to check with the DNR to see if they've heard feedback. I've not heard anything from any of the hound hunters yet, except, you know, that they enjoyed their bear hunt with whoever came with them. Mm -hmm. um, but as far as follow-up encounters, I've not heard any feedback on that yet. So I'll, I'll try to collect some. That's yeah, a good I question. think it's, I think it's going to be a, a it's going to take time. You know, it's, yes. it's, I can tell you that in Indiana, you know, we've got coon clubs scattered all over the place and, and a lot of times, DNR employees are, believe it or not, afraid to stop and interact with those people. And uh, we're just now starting to see officers that are willing to stop. And, and you know, we get, we get evaluated in Indiana on the amount of public relation hours we spend. And yet, you know, there's a PKC hunt here in my old district somewhere almost every night. And and you talk to your guys about their, their public appearance hours, and it's like, Stop in the Coon Club, you know, stop in there and, and talk to those guys and count it as a public appearance. And so I've started hey. to see that picking up, but it took years and years and years. So don't be discouraged and you're still going to get your detractors. But if you keep that positive message going and, and keep doing the work, you'll start to see it. Yeah. And, and if they're showing up and showing their face to the hound hunters, it's not the interaction is going to be more positive mm -hmm. just to start with because you have that relationship. Right. Um, and it's a two way street. It yeah. really is. Um, you know, hound hunters need to be receptive and welcoming to them. Um, just as much as the, the, you know, the department needs to reach out. I know, um, uh, I contacted a conservation officer last year, um, when gun deer season started, because there's a, um, rule in Wisconsin where, you know, the Northern half cannot, coon hunt during the gun deer season so i live in the southern farmland however kind of i sometimes hunt the border and i just wanted to make sure that in the southern farmland it's okay and i'm not going to be stopped if they know the rule and i called them and then they had absolutely no idea and i'm like reading them the rules in the, the page that i'm looking at and i was just like oh my gosh like i and it, it was like the waukesha county officer um so i mean there's definitely some education that can happen there it's an well, opportunity to build some friendship yes good yeah one thing one thing that i i would tell officers and i would tell the public too when so i got the opportunity here on both sides of it was it's not nearly as important for a hunter to know who his 
game warden is, it's more important for the game warden to know who he is. So it's important to build that relationship before uh, there's no guesswork then. You know, Mm -hmm. building those relationships, it's a miscommunication is what it really boils down to. Um, When I got hired, you know, the joke was, you know, how I want to, you know, you know how to tell when a coon hunter's lying because his lips are moving. I mean, we were coming off. Yeah, it was terrible. And here I am a coon hunter in a recruit class. But um, a lot of that was based on past experiences. We were coming out of the fur boom. Uh, you know, coon hides were selling for $35, $40 a, a hide. Everybody was a coon hunter. And even if they weren't really a coon hunter, you know, they beating pots and pans together and smoking, trying to smoke coons out from underneath the barn floors <laughs> and burning barns down. And I mean, it was a mess. So, but all those honyakers have moved on to doing other things like cooking meth and all kinds of other stupid <laughs> Better stuff. Hobbies. So, now there, yeah. There's a uh, Indiana term for you. Do you have that just, in Wisconsin? Honyaker? I was just going to ask about that. If that's yeah. a, a, who's your term there? Han- Never yeah. heard Honyaker? It. Is that how you say it? Honyaker? Han- Honyaker. That's right. <laughs> As houndsmen, we share very unique needs when we make a decision to relocate especially when it comes to finding a hound-friendly environment in which to live. REMAX Hall of Fame realtor Evan Harrell is a houndsman himself, and he and his team understand your relocation needs as no one else can. With so many things to consider before you move, Evan can help you find just the right location anywhere in the country whenever you decide to go and will even help with the process of selling your present home. And Steve, Remax Elite Realty is based in Franklin, North Carolina. Evan Harrell specializes in residential sales and especially in helping people like us to relocate to the locations we choose anywhere in the United States. Remax has been the leader in residential transactions since 1999 and rated the number one brand in real estate. Evan has been named top producer four years in a row and Chairman's Club recipient in 2018. Contact Evan online at evanherald.com or give him a call at 828-349-4600. You and your hounds will be glad you did. So let's, uh, let's move on to this other venture and if you can't tell yet listeners erica Froming's a pretty busy person so you're also involved in uh, a class for new coon hunters and i want to hear about how that idea was conceived the backstory the growth and the success you know just lay that out for us and who are you who are you working with on that sure um, well, many, many years ago, probably in the mid-2000s, I started a youth group that I called the Ringtails out of my local coon club. Um, and so with those guys, we took them, you know, camping and trapping and hunting. And every year on opening night of coon season, I would take them to a campground with their parents. And we'd at midnight, we'd go out and go coon hunting. And then the next morning, we'd come in and cook breakfast. And they'd learn how to flesh and stretch their hides and get everything ready for market. And did that for several years. And my group kind of got older and older. And then uh, a friend of ours in the DNR called one day and he said, you know, the DNR has got this structured learn to hunt program in Wisconsin and we have it for all species. I think you should do one for raccoons. 
so with his help, I put it together. The first one is, was in 2013, um, and it's a program for all ages of people to come in a completely safe and neutral environment to learn all aspects about coon hunting. And so um, sometimes we have, we've had women from downtown Chicago. We've had old men. We've had young kids. It's someone, the demographic is last broad. Year, two years ago, we had someone from Minneapolis. The city. Yes. Yeah. 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 So it's, it's really opens up opportunities for people that otherwise wouldn't know where to start. And that's one thing with hunting. If you don't grow up in it, how do you, how do you get started? It's a tough thing. So these programs, really, I was going to say you adopt a dog from the pound. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I love that story. I do love that story very much, but, um, it's a, it's a way for people to come and experience coon hunting without too much risk or, and, and they learn the right way to do it, which is really important to me. Um, so it's DNR sanctioned and it's, you know, an insured program and it's, we have an agenda that we follow. They don't need to have a hunter safety permit or anything like that. They come and learn a little bit about the history of hunting with hounds, ethics, regulations, what it's going to look like. They get a little puppy training demonstration. They get some firearm instruction and a little bit of range time so that they're comfortable shooting if they want to. And then that night we break out into small groups and if they want, they take turns harvesting raccoons. Actually, two years ago, somebody got a cinnamon raccoon, which yeah. is really cool. And that was the first. We didn't even see it at, at first because we're looking for, you know, regular colored coon. And it, it it would blend in with the bark. And there was like some like dead oak leaves on this uh-huh. leaner tree that we were on. And then we're looking, looking. It was probably like over eight minutes we were looking. And then all of a sudden someone spotted it. And we're like, oh, my gosh. Yeah. And we were all so excited. And it was a very exciting time for yeah. everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so they go out and get, they get their coon hide or, you know, get some coons harvested that night. And then they have a little campfire when we get back. And then the next morning after breakfast, same thing. They flush and stretch their hides. They learn about the fur market, how to get their furs ready for it. And if they want, we send it out for tanning and they get it back a few months later. So out of this program, we've made a couple new coon hunters. You know, it's kind of a recruiting program. But beyond that, I think it really gives people um, a really positive experience, a firsthand experience with hunting with hounds. And who knows, you know, someday they may grow up and be voters or landowners or have some there sort of. There you go. That's it. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. So- they may never, they may never pick up the sport, but now they've got a face to go with that activity and they see Erica Froming and they remember the positive impact you had. So Erica, I've got a question for you. Uh, how would you encourage other states who may not have a program like this? I know that several states were picking up this philosophy of learn to hunt program. I think uh, uh, a lot of states are even calling it the learn to hunt program. And I don't know if it came from Wisconsin. I know they look up that way a lot for guidance on these things. But how could you encourage a state organization to get get involved in a program like this? What are some of the things they need to do to be effective and convince their wildlife department to let them do this? Oh, geez. Well, um, you know, Wisconsin's so open to those sort of things, so it's not tough to convince them there that we need more opportunities. But I think if you tried your local biologist or local game warden and started with them to talk about helping you put together a program um, that's, you know, sanctioned through the DNR as well um, and explain, you know, increasing opportunity, changing demographics, how to get more hunters in the field and the, the whole public image and opportunity part of it, I think, I don't think it would be a hard sell at all. I think it just takes a little bit of organization and a little bit of time. And I'm happy to send whatever materials I have 
have to anybody that's looking to get one started as well. Um, so you wouldn't have to write it from scratch if you didn't want to. Um, there are other learn to hunt programs that aren't quite as in depth as this one, but I think this one gives them a, a really good, well-rounded experience in it. Um, but yeah, that's where I would start as local biologist or local game warden and see if they can help you put together a program. And hopefully their state already has something. If not, maybe you can run a pilot one and then the state will adopt it. Because we do have a biologist that comes to ours, right? Yes, yeah. we do. Yeah, but biologist presents on raccoon biology mm -hmm. for us. Yep. Well, the biggest thing going right now, the hot buzzword in wildlife management is recruit, retain, retain, I'll say this again. Recruit, recruit, retain, and reactivate. Yes, the three R's. So, <laughs> R three theory. So you're hitting every one of those with the work that you're doing up there. And I would encourage our listeners if if you want to secure the future of hound sports, pick up the phone and find out if you've got a learn to hunt program, and then contact Erica and get the get the uh, curriculum for this program. How much easier can it be? Right. And what we can do in that case, if they contact us through our emails and through our social media, Chris, we can forward the request on to Erica. Um, but uh, is this the first school is all part of this, right? Uh, the or first is that a separate thing? That's a separate thing as well. Okay. Okay. Well, we need to talk about that. Tell us about the first school. <laughs> well, our role in that is a little bit smaller, but there's a program in Wisconsin called the Midwest First School where wildlife professionals from all over the Midwest really come to learn about fur-bearing fur -bearing animals. Um, and So they learn about biology, ecology, um, best management practices, trapping, and I go and talk to them a little bit about hunting with hounds and what that looks like and what our influence is on the fur market and fur harvest. So it's just, we just have a small part of that, but um, we're very fortunate to be invited to that table as well. I see. That's great. Well, you actually, they teach uh, the attendees how to handle fur, how to uh, yep. market they, their fur and so forth. Yeah, they go set traps and then they... Um, flesh and stretch their high skin, you know, skin them, flesh and stretch their hides. They learn how to get them ready for the market, what, how the market works. Um, and there's a lot of really great organizations that come and support that. So that's a week-long event. Wow. Well, you know, unfortunately, raccoon hides are not worth a lot of money these days. Uh, you know, I was never what you would call a hide hunter, but I always did uh, – you know, keep the hides from the coons that I did harvest, especially those nice northern hides out of Michigan. And I enjoyed going to the fur buyer at the end of the season. And, uh, you know, I saw the prices uh, uh, decrease considerably over the years. But still, you know, when I left Michigan in 2004, I think we were averaging about $8 across the board, uh, you know, for coon pelts. And uh, it was an, a fun part of the sport for me. It's something that I enjoyed. Um, you know, my dad taught me uh, to conserve when I was a kid. So it's kind of like really, it would be really hard for me to take more than one coon out of a tree because that's just the way I was taught. I know in some areas where they're a lot more plentiful, that's probably not practical. But at any rate, uh, you know, I, it would be great to see these young hunters uh, be able to participate in fur taking uh, with a hound. Um, and, 
that that sounds like a lot of fun. Good program. And yeah. I I hear that if there are multiple coon in a tree, is it that if you're going to just harvest one, it's the top one that you take that's going to be the boar? I think there's a lot of theories on oh, that. Yeah. I've not proven any of them oh, yet. Oh, we but need I, to drill down into this. Yeah, yeah. You know, testing. I've always <laughs> I've always kind of you know kept that as a rule of thumb to take the highest one up in the tree but uh are usually you know the uh, if if i thought it was a sow and and yearlings or young coons i would just take one of the young ones and, and leave that producer up there but i guess there's a lot of different theories i'll give you the indiana indiana twist on it okay <laughs> okay so so it depends on the time of the year you know if it's during the rut then mm. you shoot the lower coon because more than likely it's followed the sow sure. up uh -huh. the tree. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What do you think about that? Yeah. I think it's another experiment that we've got to do, and I still have yet to do the cheese curd experiment. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you're yeah. So we're on a quest this year to to keep track of the percentages of whichever you decide to shoot higher low well there's yeah. an old west virginia method that we probably should reserve for another time or maybe a private discussion but <laughs> it, let's just say it has to do with shaking the tree has anyone ever heard that one no <laughs> no it I'm has to, to do with shaking the tree and a rattling sound and i'll just leave it with you from there and you can try oh jeez. <laughs> Okay. Let your I'll explain later, Lauren. <laughs> that, that, that's hill, that's hillbillyology right there. Okay. Well, and and we were talking about you know selling furs and getting getting uh, new hunters or uh, trappers or whatever and into knowing what the market does and how exciting it would be to sell furs for the first time. And when you were talking about that, um, I giggled to myself, Steve, because I remember the first time I went and sold fur uh last year and i at the time i didn't have my truck i had the the jetta the nice jetta <laughs> and i had a huge like tupperware bin in my truck or in my in, not in my truck in my trunk of the car and i had my dog with me and i so you line up there's this big truck that's in like the parking lot of you know a business that's closed at the time and all these trucks line up ready to sell and there's you know time that he opens his window and so i i'm like four four trucks back in my car and i roll up and like the, the guy in front of me and the guy behind me both got out of their cars and stopped and like i i could like Hear, we got to see this. I could hear the jaws <laughs> dropping. Like this girl comes and pulls this, you know, 20 pound Tupperware out of her trunk, slaps it down on the concrete. <laughs> and I had seen videos of how the sale works before on their Facebook page. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to start with like, I'm just going to start slamming them on the. Now, are these green fur or whole coons? They were green. They were green. Um, and so I just start slapping them on the on the the <laughs> counter there, and I knew what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna start with like the crappier ones first, and then lead up to my big nice prime boar mm -hmm. uh, coons. And uh, it was it was an interesting experience, and um, I'm sure a lot of people that saw that won't forget it. 
I bet not. Yeah. Exactly. And then he wanted to take a picture for his Facebook page with me and the dog. Mm-hmm. It was the most awful picture, but sure, go ahead. <laughs> Good job. Yeah. Oh, the experiences with fur buyers. I remember go we'd go to the first shed, you know, and the guy, it was sawdust on the floor. And you've got the, you know, I, I kept my furs rolled in plastic bags. I didn't stretch and dry them. I just froze them. I what we call case skin, the, the coon, and I'd put them in my coat. I had one of those old uh, canvas uh, hunting coats that were popular years ago that you could put whole coons in there. But anyway, I would take my furs, and I'd probably take 50 or so, and uh, they were all in, in plastic bags. I would take them out and thaw them at home. I would stretch them out. I would take a hair dryer and dry them, and I would take a comb and comb out all the burrs oh, yeah. out of them and all this, and so they're looking really good. And uh, take them to the fur buyer, and the first thing he does is he takes them and throws them down in that sawdust on the floor. He looks at this one, he throws it over in this pile. He picks up another yep. one, he throws yep. it in this pile, and he's grading them as he goes. And so over here, we've got these couple double X jumbos or whatever, $20, $25, you know. Look at me go. By the time I get down to the blue coon, the ones that were caught October <laughs> 1st, I'm getting a buck maybe, you know. But, but year after year there for several years, when it all averaged out, it was $8 a coon. <laughs> you know, I mean, you got the high ones and the low ones, but that, that was it. But, you know, I had a friend in Ohio that I hunted with one year there in about 1974. And he was a, he prepared his hides. He stretched them and he took borax and rubbed it into the bullet holes and it dried. And you could not tell that that coon had a bullet, that uh-huh. hide had a hole in it. So there, there's some art to that, but anyway, that's yeah. that's an interesting subject, and and uh, yeah, I've uh, learned about that art of of getting preparing your green hides with the blow dryer and everything from Max Gibson, <laughs> and I'm just picturing this old guy in his basement fluffing up his furs. fluffing up and brushing these coon hides, you know. Oh, you <laughs> betcha. You betcha. You oh, betcha. Yeah. <laughs> oh, for sure, for sure. <laughs> All right. Well, Chris, <coughs> this has been fun. I, uh, Erica, what about a good hunting story or two that you can uh, relate to us? Maybe with some of the kids you took out or maybe Jeez. one that you and Matt had together or just any good good hunting story you can share with our listeners. Well, all the hunts that Matt and I have together are a little bit competitive. As I mentioned, he's real nice and I'm just more competitive <laughs> than sometimes he is. <laughs> so our hunts together are sometimes a little strenuous more because <laughs> I like to be the first under the tree. I like to be the one that shoots the coon out. My dog better do better than his dog. Like <laughs> doesn't always happen that way, her. but uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's pretty fun. He just, he takes it all in stride and just has good humor about it. But uh, we have a lot of good fun with it. Yeah. Are there yeah. any like, like, crazy stories where like someone's gotten stuck in the mud like I have or yeah you know yeah we well I hunt the bottoms back here I love hunting these big swamps and river bottoms and everybody hates it but me and I just think they're the most beautiful place and the you know dogs learn a lot you make a nice dog the coon run hard 
but the mud, you get stuck in it. And so, yeah, I did get stuck in the neighbor's ditch one night and I'm rolling around like an alligator and he saw, he must've seen my light flash and he came down to check on me. And I'm glad he did. Cause I don't know if I would have gotten out by myself. <laughs> so you're rolling around like an alligator in the ditch in your coon hunting gear. So yeah. you weren't, your truck didn't get stuck. You got no, stuck. No, you just, I got stuck. Yeah. So how did he end up pulling you out? Or? He gave me a stick and gave me a good yank out. <laughs> yeah. You get that once in a while, but you know, that, that slimy black mud, you just get yeah. stuck in it one oh, time. I had to cross it the last time we were here and oh, God. it sticks to your chest. <laughs> It, it smells wonderful. One night I was hunting with a friend of mine and it was hard winter. It was, it was probably, you know, a good 10 degrees out. And, uh, I wanted to hunt this big swamp cause I knew it was finally froze over well enough to get in there. And I had my puppy and an older dog cause Bergie and Moxie and Bergie was just a, you know, maybe she would have been six or seven months old and she treated ahead of Moxie. So I had to get there, right? Like that's important stuff. And so I could have jumped yeah. across this ditch. The ditch was not froze yet. And I missed, and I, all the way up to my armpits. And I crawl oh. out the other side, and it's frozen instantly. And I look back at my friend, and I'm like, well, I guess I'll see you in there. <laughs> and he's like, oh, I'm not coming over. So I finally get in there, and, you know, of course, then the other dog treed with her. And they had this nice, great big old boar coon up there, so I had to get that out. And um, finally, when I just about got back to the creek he, or the ditch, he had found his way across. But, it, you know, your bibs freeze like tin armor. Like they clink when you walk when you're that frozen. It's, uh, but you'll never forget it. <laughs> I'm sure it's happened to me. That has not happened yet. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've hunted. I love when the swamps are frozen. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. It's so nice. It is. Um, but, you know, I, I hope that never happens to me because I, oh my gosh. It'll the come. smell of muck. It's just <laughs> nauseating to me. <laughs> well, Erica, the name of our podcast is Houndsman XP, and the X is a, is a way of, of spelling extreme, and <laughs> the P is for performance. And with that story, I think you qualify for the club of being <laughs> an, an extreme houndswoman for sure. Uh, up to your up to your armpits and in frozen mud <laughs> or, or water it's a, it's a and, real good look <laughs> and getting in there to your pup and getting that game down to the pup and and finishing the hunt man that that's a good story that's pretty good it reminds <laughs> lindell price is a friend of mine that's been uh, we've been friends for many many years and he was a field rep at ukc and akc when i was there and he would always come up in the fall and hunt with me in Michigan. And we hunted on this one farm one night, and the dogs treed right on the edge of this. Uh, it looked like a pond. It was actually a borrow pit, if you know what that is, where they've, you know, taken dirt out to use oh, sure. for some other purpose. And I told him, I said, and the coon was uh, up a tree out on a limb out over that water. And I said, Lindell, let's don't shoot that coon. We can't get it. Oh no, we got to shoot that coon. The dogs <laughs> did a good job, you know? So we're looking around there and we're kind of halfway arguing, uh, uh, about whether we're going to take this coon or not. And all of a sudden I noticed he's out in that borrow pit and he's hollering. <laughs> he said, help, I can't get out. I'm stuck. I can't move. And he had literally sunk in so deep that he couldn't get his, you know, so basically I had to unload the rifle. I don't recommend this, you know, but take the rifle by the barrel and point the mm -hmm. stop to him. 
and let him get a hold of the stock and pull it out. But we did get him out. But the funny part is we always stopped at the Dunkin' Donuts at a truck stop on the way home. <laughs> oh, no. Honey. And Lindell has got that aromatic mud that you're talking about all over him. And there's no there's no hose or faucet out there. He's out there. The water, it has rained before, and there's a low place in the concrete, and there's water standing in there. And he's down wallowing in that water trying, <laughs> trying to get the mud and stink off himself because nothing's going to stop him from that donut. You know, so we laugh about that. I think but, almost any of the coon hunters that are listening or whoever, you know, is out there in the woods hunting knows what that mud is like and has probably been in it. And what I call it, I call it quick mud <laughs> because I've gotten stuck to the point where I'm like, you've got to call the fire department. You've got to go out. You've got to go to the truck. There's no cell service here. Like I'm looking at my phone sinking into the mud. I'm hunting with two 80 year old men. <laughs> I'm with, not getting you out. I am not within like sticks reach. It's not how I envisioned this to end. Yeah. And I'm like, right. the fire department's going to have to get me. <laughs> oh my. Well, Erica, I'll tell you what, I, th I think you qualify for extreme performance because of all the things that you do. I've, I've been thoroughly amazed at you're well-spoken. You represent the sport. Well, uh, you're making an impact in your state and among your, your, not only houndsmen, but other sporting groups. And I just want to thank you for coming on the podcast and sharing your story with us. And I hope that this can be an inspiration to other people. We see a lot on social media about, uh, you know, what can we do to save our sport? And, and we're losing it. But you guys are doing things right up there. And I think that's to be celebrated. And I'm, I'm glad that we got you on the podcast. Thank you very much. And thank you for pointing out that we need help. Uh, there's, there's a lot of people, you're right. There's a lot of people talking that we, that we're losing our sport. And I don't know if we are losing it entirely, if it's just changing dramatically. And, I, and I'm kind of glad for some of the changes, but I, I do want to say that, you know, we're all representatives of the sport out here and I, I really don't like being represented by some of the bad apples. So I think we need, to, um, as much as we need to work from the outside in, our sport does need some help from the inside out. We need to start holding each other accountable and encouraging each other to learn better and do better. Um, and that that's going to be what saves our sport more than anything, in my opinion. So um, we need help. We need a lot of good extra feet on the ground. But we also need to think hard about why we're doing what we're doing and, and how we do it and how that might look to other people. But I'm on the, same note, as, oh, ahead, I'm on the same note as you, Chris. Like it, Just to see what Erica and, and her her group of people have been able to do um, in this state and, and how it's been effective. And then also just as a, a mentor and being so encouraging to someone who's new and, you know, always open to questions, um, you know, take offering to take me out on hunts, things like that. That's, that's what we need in this sport. And that's, um, you know, what, what everybody else can aspire to be. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So how can people contact you, Lauren, if they want to get involved with the Heartland or you learn to hunt, if they're local up there? What's the best way for them to get a hold of you, social media? You mean Erica? You, you said uh, Lauren. I'm sorry. <laughs> yes, or La Lauren, you've got a lot of information, too. They could get a hold of you, too, but they can contact you through Houndsman XP Podcast. Yeah, we're on Houndsman XP. You know, all our social media platforms, we're, you know, always ready to answer any messages that you send us. Um, so if you need information definitely send it there if if erica you'd like to provide any 
Yeah. So anything regarding the Heartland Classic, um, you could message me directly or you could message us through social media. There's a Heartland Classic Facebook page. Um, you could also message me through the Wisconsin Coon Hunters Association. Our um, email address is listed there or you can find me on social media. Um, I'm not too hard to track down or just, you know, call Lauren and she'll point you in my direction. But I'm certainly happy to help anybody. If you're trying to do good things, I'm 100 percent behind you. So I'll yeah. do whatever I can to help. Yeah, I, I think we're all pretty active on social media and we can get whoever needs to get in contact with the right people. We can mm-hmm. we can make it happen and we're super happy to do it and thrilled to to have, you know, that that engagement. Mm-hmm. Well, Erica, I'm excited about this new arrival. I want you. Uh, do we ha- do we know uh, yet? Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, we're having we're having a baby boy, and he's already got his first pair of Carhartt bibs waiting for him. All got a right. backpack. I was ready so was he can go ask. coon hunting. Yeah. <laughs> Does he have his now? Who's going to be carrying that backpack? Is it a big Well, I think I'll have to carry the kid because I asked my husband if he'd carry my coons for me this year. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's like, a, you know, I yeah. guess we could trade off and on. You know, I, what, however it works. Yeah, I, I can skin yeah. a coon a fair bit faster than him. So I, we, we I, might, I have something off. to learn then. <laughs> I can just see this little rosy-cheeked boy in that backpack or in that carrier you know, with that big Erica smile, uh, just having the time of his life out there in the woods with mommy and daddy and all those hounds. What life could be better than that? Let's hope. Yeah. I, I sure hope he enjoys it. I, it'll be tough for him if he doesn't. So he could not love it, though, right? I mean, he's growing up on a farmette with horses and chickens. That's right. That's and, right. you know, coons right out the door and <laughs> hounds here and uh, that's right on the dead end road. So. Yep. <laughs> Great stuff. Steve, you want to wrap it up? Okay, I will. I hate to because this has been such fun. It's, it's been awesome. It's been really good to have uh, Lauren on her first uh, podcast with us as a co-host and also to have Erica. And uh, I echo all the things that Chris said uh, Erica, really, really proud of you and what you've accomplished up there. And uh, we have a, a, a little ritual we go through at the end of every podcast, and it goes back to a bear hunting friend and what he said one day on a bear hunt. Uh, you know, there's probably one of those big old silver Wisconsin boar coons out there in that swamp. And we're going to cut the dogs loose here in a minute. Um, and they're going to get struck. But when they do, I want you to know that you follow your hound and I'll follow mine. <laughs>